This is The Guardian. Today, where does China stand on Russia? And what could it do to end the war in Ukraine? Chinese reporter Lu Yunwang is embedded with the Russian army, reporting from the bombardment of Mariupol. It's a striking image. He stood in rubble, dressed in a helmet and flak jacket, the only foreign journalist on the front line with exclusive access to the Russian side of the fighting. A Chinese reporter's very presence in the midst of Russian troops and his rare level of access has prompted questions about the nature of China's relationship with Russia. China has always said that we believe in non-interference in other countries' affairs, that we believe in sovereignty. The Guardian's Tanya Brannigan has been closely following the developments. But at the moment, it seems to see its strategic and political interests as being aligned much more clearly with Russia's. On Friday, in a two-hour phone call, US President Joe Biden warned Xi Jinping that China would face heavy consequences if Beijing backed Russia's war. China, but the White House is insisting that China would pay a price and that that was President Biden's message to President Xi yesterday on this call. And in a statement over the weekend, Prime Minister Boris Johnson urged China to be on the right side of history in what he called a battle between good and evil. As the world watches on in horror, desperately hoping for peace, could Chinese President Xi Jinping be the foreign leader uniquely positioned to influence President Vladimir Putin? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, can China broker an end to Russia's war in Ukraine? Tanya Brannigan, you're a Guardian leader writer and former Beijing correspondent. Can I ask you, first of all, could you give me a mini history lesson on how Russia and China's relationship has developed and changed over the years? Well, like most neighbours, it's been a sort of hot and cold uh, relationship over the years. So they've actually had sort of trade agreements going back to the late 17th century. But then in the 19th century, as the Qing Empire started to get carved up by foreign powers, Britain notably, uh, Russia was one of those that went in, that was annexing territory, that was imposing these terribly unfair trade arrangements and so forth. So that was pretty much a low. Then, of course... The communists come to power in the Soviet Union, and we see the communists first emerging in China. And it's Soviet support that brings them to power in China in 1949. And then comes the Sino-Soviet split. Moscow heads the communist world in mourning the passing of Joseph Stalin. After Stalin's death, early 60s. And that's what allows actually the US then to sort of have this detente with China uh, under Nixon. President Nixon's visit to our country at the invitation of the Chinese government provides the leaders of the two countries 
with an opportunity of meeting in person to seek the normalization of relations between the two countries. We see then the fall of the Soviet Union, of course. China and uh, Russia become closer, establish better relationships. There's a certain amount of disdain, I think, on the part of China that they feel the Soviet Union got it terribly wrong. They've spent a lot of time studying it because, of course, it's one of the things that concerns them greatly. And they think, well, it was just a terrible mistake to sort of politically liberalize at all and sort of look where it got you. But what we have seen over more recent years is a real sort of boost in the relationship, notably in 2014, when, of course, Russia annexed Crimea. We suddenly saw the relationship develop. We saw a lot more trade being done. Bilateral trade sort of soar again in the last year or so. This year, we get this critical meeting where Putin goes over to Beijing. Putin is in Beijing for talks with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. It's the Chinese president's first face-to-face -face meeting with a world leader in two years. The pair will later... It's a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics. He's the one VIP that turns up uh, and they really say, we're serious about this. They sign a big gas and oil deal for the next 30 years or so. And they say, we're really sort of cementing this marriage. So the relationship between the two countries has been up and down. But since Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, isn't Vladimir Putin's personal relationship really seems to have strengthened? Can you tell me a bit more about that? These are two men who've spent a lot of time together over the years. They've met probably around 40 times, I think, now. Uh, they've shared birthdays together. They certainly have a lot in common. And I think it's striking that there are so many sort of parallels between the two when you look at them. So these are men who have really centralized power. They've run increasingly repressive regimes um, in at home. We've also seen them pursue increasingly aggressive foreign policy. And another thing that's very striking about them is that they've both really employed these historical narratives domestically of this kind of return to greatness, that their nations have somehow sort of fallen by the way and that they're restoring them to their rightful place in the world. And they certainly have a lot in common. And I think it's a marriage of convenience, but marriages of convenience can be quite successful, can't they? On February the 4th, before the Winter Olympics began, the two leaders, as you said, met in what is believed to be their 38th meeting in the last decade. And they signalled a pledge that their friendship was unlimited and rock solid. What did you make of that? And what do you think brought them together in this very macho pairing? So it definitely felt like a turning point. At the same time, I think people have always had a degree of scepticism uh, about just how far this relationship will go. Because the one thing that really binds them together is their distrust and fear of America in particular, NATO more broadly. And so that's the thing that sort of drives them together. It's more their sort of fear of the outside world than it is perhaps sort of internal factors. Four days after the Winter Olympics ended, 
Russia invades Ukraine. And there was a lot of speculative analysis at that time that Beijing had noticed in advance. We believe that China, in fact, was aware uh, before the invasion took place that uh, Vladimir Putin was planning something. They may not have understood the full extent of it because... And may have convinced Putin to stall his war until said Olympics had ended. Do you think she knew? We certainly know that the Americans were telling Beijing repeatedly, we think Putin's about to do this. They, of course, may have thought it was disinformation. It's very hard to believe that the subject didn't come up when they met. Now, of course, whether that meant that they thought Putin was bluffing, maybe that's a possibility. They may, of course, have thought that he planned a more limited invasion, uh, perhaps going into just Donetsk and Luhansk, which, of course, was what many people in the West thought was still the most likely scenario. I think what's certainly the case is that they didn't anticipate the full scale of the backlash internationally. But I think the other thing, of course, is that we're in a system which is incredibly centralised. Xi Jinping has centralised power in a way that really nobody had since Mao. And who is going to be the person who tells him, we've got to walk away from this? I mean, he is so personally invested in that relationship He was there saying, this is a relationship with no limits. It's going to be incredibly hard to walk back from that. But if that that conversation, it's likely to have happened, it's impossible to avoid the subject, where would that leave Xi? Do you think he brought Putin's line that this war was provoked by encroachment of NATO and that Russia's military action would be swift and conclusive? Well, this is where I think China finds itself in a very difficult position. I mean, one analyst talked about it trying to straddle the unstraddleable. But then also their political uh, and strategic interests lie very much in constraining NATO and in particular the US. And that is a extremely uh, deep-rooted belief for China. It's become more so over recent years. I mean, something else that um, she and Putin share is that I think they genuinely believe that the US is behind the colour revolutions, the Arab Spring and all these uprisings that we've seen around the world. They believe that the US in their terms is really sort of out to get them and that they need to push back against that. So we've seen Chinese government officials talking about the US Indo-Pacific strategy uh, as really being a NATO for Asia. They feel it's directed absolutely at them. And we've seen this sort of really deep suspicion, I think, um, about what America wants. This is, as you've said, a distrust that has embedded itself for generations. But is there any recent pivotal moment that might explain just how strong this sentiment still is? A really formative moment, not just for the Chinese government, but actually for the Chinese public, was the NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade during the Kosovan War. And a memorial service is held in Belgrade for the victims of the NATO attack on the Chinese embassy. Um, Now, the US has always said it was a terrible mistake. We were using out-of-date mapping systems, basically. I have never met anybody in China who believed that. The Observer ran a story not long after it happened, suggesting the real reason was signals intelligence being passed through the embassy and so forth. But, you know, people died in that attack. It was the bombing of an embassy. Unsurprisingly, 
it's made a very deep impression on the Chinese people. I think that would have been the case even without Chinese propaganda uh, that's obviously been pumped out. But that was a very formative moment. So there is a, a sort of quite deep rooted suspicion of and hostility to the US and NATO. But as the world has now seen, Russia's devastation of Ukraine and this war has catastrophically spiralled. And given the near global condemnation and the sheer horror that people feel, where has that left Beijing? I think it finds itself in a very difficult position. So we see a lot of public statements that essentially say, you know, this is a terrible situation. Uh, of course, we feel awful about it. You know, we hope that there will be peace. It's interesting that China's obviously abstained in key UN votes. It's also been very clear it hasn't blamed Russia for anything that's happened. And strikingly, there's been not just uh, by media within China, but even by Chinese diplomats, there's been the propagation of this Russian disinformation around, for example, uh, bioweapons coming out of labs in Ukraine. Weapons ...and becoming a key part of Russia's disinformation campaign, justifying the invasion of Ukraine. We're seeing them really uh, amplify Russian disinformation it's striking, for example, we had a vote at the International Court of Justice calling on Russia to uh, withdraw its troops and end this invasion immediately. China did actually vote with Russia on that one. So I think this is a moment where they find themselves in a very difficult position and they're now trying to sort of figure out how far they go. Tanya, you've told me about Russia and China's shared strategic interests and their common fear, this very deep suspicion of US power. But China and Russia have very different economic interests. So how much is the relationship with Russia worth to China compared to trade relations with the EU? The trade with Russia is about a tenth of its trade with the EU and US, if I recall correctly. It's certainly going up very fast. Uh, so we saw a big bump even over the last year to about 145 billion, an increase of about 35%, I think. Nonetheless, trade with Russia is ultimately a sort of a fraction of its trade with other places. And if it wants to hold on to those markets, I think what it will be thinking about is to what extent are we likely to be hit by sanctions? How long are sanctions likely to last? Um, or are these th things that will be rolled back? Sort of what kind of pain might we experience? We're going to sort of look at situation where they're worried about sort of economic stability in the broadest sense, because they're thinking about things like energy supplies, food supplies, how that's affected by the war. They actually get quite a lot of wheat from Ukraine. They're selling things to Ukraine as well. They've got quite strong relationships there. They had a deal for the subway. Those are things that are obviously now in doubt. And more interestingly, we're hearing anecdotally that there may be other places in Eastern Europe that are sort of thinking twice. I think we are seeing investors starting to think about, again about China for a number of reasons. I mean, generally that it's become a place that seems more hostile to foreigners and foreign influence in, in a sort of a range of ways. It's got a resurgence of COVID at the moment. There's been obviously the big crackdown 
uh, on tech companies within China as the state has sort of reasserted its power. But then on top of that, if you now have China aligning itself uh, so clearly with Russia in what looks like quite an unstable world, I think that too is making people wonder, um, should we be doing business there? Is our money safe there? Is this a good long-term bet, essentially? And of course, we've had the pandemic, which again, has had an impact on supply chains and people's relations with China and so forth. So I think China does feel in quite a vulnerable position in some ways, certainly economically. And I think it's weighing its sort of options up very carefully. But ultimately, I mean, from everything we've discussed, China's priority is China. And given how far sanctions have been imposed on Russia, do you think she should be worried that China would suffer a similar fallout from the West if they come out too strongly in support of Putin? And surely China can't afford that? I think that's exactly what they are weighing up at the moment. I think it will partly be about how strong they feel the US is, whether this is their moment to sort of recalibrate things. Certainly, if you sort of talk to diplomats, they would say that the Chinese vision of the world is one in which China is in charge in Asia. Russia's there sort of keeping a check on Europe and the US is kind of pushed back into its box a little bit. Um, and the Chinese would be much happier with a world like that. What exactly has Beijing said about the war so far? It's talking about a crisis. It's talking about the need for fighting to stop and so forth. It's certainly not blaming Moscow. So what we've heard a lot of is that essentially the implication is this was an understandable response. We've heard a lot about NATO's role in this, about NATO and America uh, and how Russia felt threatened by them. So we're hearing this real magnification of Russian narratives. At the same time, China is also sending aid to Ukraine, as far as I understand. Humanitarian aid from China has been distributed to Ukrainians worth about 5 million yuan. The supplies included blankets. Um, public statements in which Beijing says we're very aggrieved, we're, we want peace. Why is what China is saying not marrying with what reports claim China is doing behind the scenes? I think it's really important to be clear that this was not a war that China was looking for. China, it's experiencing damage from this, as I said, particularly, I think, relations with Europe. And I think at the moment, it's still quite kind of keen to sort of try and build a relationship with European countries, even as it keeps its distance. So I think the fact that we see this sort of disparity between some of the things it says and some of the things it does really comes down to the fact it finds itself in this bind where it thinks, how do we reconcile our economic interests and needs and our strategic interests and this you know hallowed principle of non-interference you know how do we kind of try and keep all these things on the table and in, instead of deciding it's going to sort of go one way it's it's still kind of trying to keep all those things together well china isn't the only country finding it difficult in terms of managing its relationships with russia there is also still a lot of political pressure, and it's obvious why China would be expected to play a role in peacekeeping. Now, the Ukrainian government has made an appeal to China to step in and to help mediate a ceasefire with Russia. Could this be done? I think there are sort of two doubts really here. The first is whether it actually has the sort of intensive knowledge of the situation. What would it bring to the table that other people 
such as Israel aren't. Uh, and secondly, and much more critically, does it have the desire to do so? And so I think the feeling is that you might see them essentially carrying messages between the two countries all sort of sitting at a table. But whether they would actually be taking a really constructive role that changed the nature or the quality of those discussions, I think, is another matter. But overall, even that said, there is this growing sense that China could and should step in to stop this war. While at the same time, there are all these narratives that we keep hearing that President Putin is obsessed, uh, has tunnel vision, and he's not listening to anyone. So with those two things in the balance, where does that leave Xi Jinping and what can he actually do? What leverage does China actually have in this situation? Russia needs help. It's now China that's very firmly the big brother and the Soviet Union's the little brother. One of Putin's great selling points and the reason that people are so astonished in some ways that he did go ahead and launch this war is the fact that, you know, he said, I'm the man who sort of brought you economic stability. So Russia obviously needs Chinese economic support. It needs continued diplomatic support and cover. And it's really benefiting from the disinformation, I think, as well, that China is pumping out. Russia has gained a lot from China's help during this. Well, cautious, but sort of tiptoeing on what you've described as a very, very difficult tightrope. And meanwhile, in this sort of ongoing war of information, disinformation, China has been accused of this willingness to provide military aid to Russia, which Beijing has categorically denied. Would we ever know the reality of this? Whether China supplies that is really critical, because I think that could be a very, very big turning point in China's relations with the world. I think many of us who are very sceptical, with good reason, about Western intelligence sources have been struck by the accuracy uh, of what was being said about Ukraine. Those predictions turned out to be correct on the economic front. If China was going to provide economic aid to Russia, it will be extremely careful and limited, frankly, in how it does so. And it has to be said that I think the briefings we've received so far are not indicating that the Chinese will give military aid. And the US is clearly putting those briefings out there in the hope of deterring China from doing so. It's pretty obvious to me that the US is trying to say there will be a huge backlash if you do this. And it's wanting to make that clear to China. You know, that's why it's choosing to leak it uh, to the media. I think China would certainly think extremely carefully before providing any form of military aid because it knows how high the stakes are. But we are in uncharted territory. Coming up, China is avoiding taking a stand against the war in Ukraine. But how long can it hold out?
Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. In terms of what happens next, the longer that this war goes on, the more devastating it is. But if China's thinking about its own interests and its own priorities, as we've said, it becomes harder and harder and harder for it to sustain a position. So would that surely not have officials in Beijing scrambling to mediate talks around a ceasefire or try to bring a quicker end, whether it's behind the scenes or not, whether it's publicly or not? Is that not a viable route for them? I think it will be very interesting to see whether they do act uh, upon these suggestions that they could play some kind of mediating role. But it does also strike me uh, that if you go into that situation, you're potentially going to be making the contradictions in your own position slightly clearer, that it may be harder for them to sustain this position if they're sitting there in the talks with the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Ukrainians are then particularly are then going out and briefing people. It's also unclear to me how helpful that would be. And so just as talk of sort of being a mediator is obviously good for China, it, it, it repositions it not as part of the problem, but as being part of a solution. It seems to me that talking about China as a peacemaker as a mediator is in a way almost a bit of a red herring because what what it comes back to is is actually essentially people saying rein Putin in. So Tanya, these are a couple of scenarios that we've now discussed that China provides some kind of military assistance to Russia or not, or very carefully thinks about whether it does, which would then obviously escalate the war if it did. And we've also talked about another possible scenario in which China plays peacemaker. There's also doing absolutely nothing. Is this a sustainable option for China in the short or long term? I think a big part of that depends on how long this war continues for. It becomes harder and harder for them to hold this position over time. And it does rather feel as if something might have to give at some point. So their hope may be that they're rescued uh, from it by circumstance. But if not, I am sure um, that they're trying to figure out at the moment what they do next. Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tanya Brannigan. You can follow our coverage of this story and more from our correspondents on the war in Ukraine at theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Klitsia Sala. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Mike Lee Rao and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow.
This is The Guardian.